0: Welcome, listeners, to episode 117 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you is going to be my new year, new movie number 10. As the randomizer came up and selected a kind of later Giallo from, I believe, 1987 of Delirium. And I have that paired up with a 2022 release of The Wasteland that is on Netflix, and I believe it was from Spain. And also on this episode, I have mini-reviews of Cat People from 1942 to continue with my Trek Through the Twos, The House That Jack Built, Toombod, Bliss, Ma, and Depraved. Don't really think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this intro, so let me go ahead and get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinefy. And for my first mini-review this week is going to be Cat People. This is from 1942, making it my Trek Through the Twos for this week. And this was directed by Jacques Tourneau. This is written by DeWitt Bodine. This stars Simone Simon, Tom Conway, and Kent Smith. This is a fantasy horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being an american man marries a serbian immigrant who fears that she will turn into a cat person of her homeland's fables if they are intimate together so this is a film that i'm not really sure when i first heard about it i'm assuming at some point i'd read about it in fangoria's top 300 horror movie issue as well as an encyclopedia that i'm working through of horror movies i liked this one the first time i saw it and the more that i learned about it the more interesting this one has become i've now given it a second viewing as part of my Truck to the twos as i was saying So upon updating this review, I believe that Horror Haven, a podcast that I used to listen to, talked about this one and it sparked more interest than just a movie title on a list for me. I've learned more about Val Luton who produced this ahead of this second viewing. I bring this up because he wanted to make movies to rival what Universal was doing and I think that's what we get here. This has a depth to it that I quite enjoyed. To delve more into this, I'll shift to the backstory first. It is interesting to me that the legend of the Serbian village that Irina was raised in, even going further than that, I love the psychosis that she believes the story is true to the point where she refuses to kiss someone she loves because she's afraid that she'll become a giant cat and kill them. Now we have Dr. Judd who is trying to help her by exploring this, and that was also interesting. Rational thought is that what she's thinking here isn't real. Her belief in it, though, makes you wonder if it could be. Now, her belief in this pushes us to a subplot of the love triangle. Now, her husband of Oliver falls for Irina from the first time that he saw her. She feels the same for him. She is having guilt that she is not showing her husband intimacy, even though she loves him. I'm thinking this movie was tame due to censorship issues of the era. I won't hold that against the movie, but Irina also is jealous of Alice, who works with Oliver. As that feeling grows, she stalks Oliver when he tries to give her space. Alice, on the other hand, is having guilt of what she is doing by seeing this married man behind Irena's back. Now, they're not even doing anything as a couple, but she does love him, so I mean, there's feelings there, as she does love Oliver. Going along with this idea is Irena being a cat person or just thinking that she is. Personally, like most of this movie could be read either way. I think by the end we get a definite answer though. To look into it from a rational mind the guilt Alice is feeling could be seen as this creature that is following her. This also gives Irene an excuse as she is fearful of intimacy. Regardless, the ending of this brings a couple of images from the beginning full circle which I can always appreciate. So then to move away from the story I'll go next to the acting. I thought it was good. Simon was so cute in this movie and her accent helped that. She gives a look of being young and almost inexperienced and I thought played well for her character. Her change to become more aggressive as she's slowly losing her husband was interesting too. Now her husband of Kerr Smith is very charming, but I do lose respect for him as this goes on. It is hard to blame him for his wife not giving him the attention that he needs. His performance was fine though. Conway was good as the doctor. He gets a little bit creepy in the end though, I will say that. And then we also have Jane Randolph, who's also easy on the eyes. I thought she was a bit shady in trying to take Smith from Simon as well though. So the rest of the cast I thought does round this out for what was needed, and then next I'll take it to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. There isn't really a lot in the way of effects in this one, and I think a lot of that is due to the era. All the animals were great though, especially the big cats. Cinematography is what shines here, as we have some very cool shots. There's a swimming pool scene that is tension filled, and I also thought the climax sequence was good. A lot of what is done here is with shadows, which can help to avoid using bad effects. Now, I was fine with all of this. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out to me, but it also doesn't hurt the film either. So with that said, this is an interesting one. It has a backstory that I liked with a myth in a Serbian village. The story of what plays out, I like that subtext. The acting drives this film, and I thought our three leads here were great with the rest of the cast rounding of this out as well. There aren't a lot in the wave effects, but we do some things with interesting angles and shots. The score doesn't stand out, but it also doesn't hurt it. Now, I will warn you that this is in black and white and from the 1940s, so if that's an issue, I would avoid this one. If not, I'd give this one a viewing, as I thought this is a good film with a lot to take in. So my rating here for Cat People from 1942 is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. And for my second review for this week is going to be The House That Jack Built. This is from 2018. This was directed by Lars Van Trier. This is also based on the idea from him, as well as... Janelle Holland and Von Trier also wrote the screenplay the stars Matt Dillon Bruno Ganz and Uma Thurman this is a crime drama horror thriller film that is a co-production between a lot of countries actually and that would be including Denmark France Sweden Germany Belgium and Tunisia this is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the story, follows Jack, a highly intelligent serial killer, over the course of 12 years, and depicts the murders that develop his inner madman. So this is a film that I was turned on to by news that people walked out during the screening at Cannes Film Festival. I wrote a news article about this back in the day and personally was a little bit skeptical about it. I was still intrigued to see what this was all about. I'm also a fan of the writer and director Von Trier, so that helps. I did see this at the Gateway Film Center for the first time and then a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs as well. So there's actually not the deepest story here, but there's a lot to unravel for its two and a half hour runtime. I will say that if you like serial killer films, this one's quite interesting. It doesn't feel something like Dexter in that we're getting narration from Jack as he tells us the things that he did. I personally enjoy that, but I know some people might not. Being that this is about serial killers, I did find it interesting. All the things that are being incorporated into the character that match up with a lot of real life ones. And some of the things that they would do. One of them is that Jack is attractive. He's quite smart and has issues as a child where he would hurt animals. As stated, he also has OCD and he also mimics being a police officer at one point. There's another part where he has a crutch to appear hurt, and he even convinces a police officer to allow someone to come back with him, as this attention to detail was something I thought was good. It isn't fully original, but I do like the care that it was put in, and I can appreciate that. Now, something else I really enjoy about the story is seeing the change in his character. We are getting him telling us a story, but we are seeing him as he becomes worse. It is odd that he is the killer in this film, but at some scenes, I was hoping that he wouldn't get caught. I was thinking to myself that I shouldn't be thinking this way, but the film presents it in such a way and he has such charisma that it's hard not to. I wouldn't go as far to call him an anti-hero, but we do get invested. Going along with this, we see him overcome some of his earlier problems. He becomes better. It is here that he starts to toy with the police and newspaper by sending them pictures of his crimes. He even goes as far as giving himself a nickname of Mr. Sophisticated. That growth into what he becomes and where he ends up is quite interesting. Now, something else that I want to kind of go into here would be the issue of religion. The epilogue delves into this, but I won't get into that too much. I will say that Verge, who is somebody that talks to Jack, and we kind of get voiceover narration with that as Jack is telling him a story, has a direct representation with this, though, and that would be Verge. It is interesting that early in the film, Jake states that he's an atheist. He does believe that there's almost divine intervention, though, that allows him to get away with some things. His god complex also seems to grow from him, and it makes me more brash. As I was also saying as well, the ending delves into this much more. The reveal of who the character of Verge is is quite interesting, and I like what they do with this idea. Now, I want to shift this over to the idea that we are getting people being upset about something here, and that is the misogyny of Jack. I don't necessarily think this film is misogynistic. But I do believe that Jack is, and I also believe that there's another common trait there among serial killers. Verge tells Jack and calls him out on it on this aspect. I don't even think the female victims are stupid like Jack thinks. I think there is this realism that you don't know what is happening until it's too late. And I'll go back to something else I've said, though. He's also charismatic and disarming. This is based in part in real crimes as well. Now moving away from the story, I'll shift over to a minor gripe. The first time I saw this, I thought it ran too long. I still feel this way to an extent. There are a lot of things that are repeated a couple of times that we don't necessarily need. We get some talk about art, architecture, and engineering that doesn't necessarily go anywhere outside of Jack living with thoughts of grandeur in what he's doing. I think some of this could be removed to tighten it up. Now, there's also some things here that I think Von Trier is putting in due to what has been said about him. He's trying to get a rise out of people, and that bogs the movie down, though. With that said, I really dug the ending and where it went. I thought it was interesting idea for what this movie is doing, despite that runtime. It doesn't necessarily feel like it on this second watch, so I will give some credit back to that. Now from there I'll go to the acting which I thought was amazing. Dylan had a phenomenal job here as Jack. I think his look, how he plays the role and everything was perfect for it. As mean as it is to probably say, I could see him being a guy like this if he wanted to be bruno gans is quite interesting in this one as well we don't see him until the ending but i like his character who he represents and who he's supposed to be i thought uma thurman Scheiben Fallon hogan sophie groble and riley keogh were all good as the victims also interesting that you get to see Keo topless as well if that's something you're looking for thought the rest of the cast rounded this movie out for what was needed on top of that so then the last thing I'm going to go into here would be the effects, what I thought were great, and then we also have good cinematography and soundtrack. This was something that I was curious about, and I knew a lot of people were upset with the effects. They were done practically, so the amount of realism that went into that part was good. I don't even think that it's the most violent Von Trio film I've ever seen, as I think Antichrist, you know, kind of goes way beyond this. And I mean, even Nymphomaniac has some stuff as well. There was one that got to me, but I won't say what the effect was, but it was look real. Going along with that, he did shoot the heck out of this movie. Thought that was beautiful. We get some amazing shots and the use of mirrors with how things are framed as well. I don't say the soundtrack worked for what was needed. We get quite a bit of classical music that fit, especially with Jack's lofty thoughts about himself. And we also get quite a few times where they use the song from David Bowie of fame. Thought that was clever that they used it here. So now with that said, this is a good one. We have a makings of a great film, but I just think there's some minor missteps that kind of bring it down for me. The story was great, as well as the acting and the effects. There are some darker aspects that I enjoyed. The pacing would have been better if some of what they you know, didn't necessarily need were removed. As it does bog it down at parts for me, the soundtrack was used effectively, especially the use of the song Fame. I did have to watch this as the rated cut you know the theatrical version both times i'm looking to grab the director's cut soon and re-watch it once more but after both viewings i'm still sitting on this one as being good just missing out on going higher so my rating here for the house that jack built is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. and then i also got to watch tombod this is from 2018 this was directed by rahi anil barvi And then the creative director was Ananid Gandhi. And then the co-director is Adish Prasad. This was co-written amongst Mitesh Shah, Parasad, Barve, Gandhi. And this is inspired by the work of Narayan Dharahap. This stars Soham Shan, Jyoti Melshi, and Anita Date. This is a drama fantasy Horror thriller film that is a co-production between india and sweden this is currently sitting on a 8.3 on imdb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mythological story about a goddess who created the entire universe the plot revolves around the consequences when humans build a temple for her firstborn so now this is a movie that was a mini review back on episode number seven so if you want more in-depth i would recommend you go over there but what i kind of noticed after the second viewing here of this movie is that it is for sure visually stunning i love the mythology that we get here with this goddess who gave birth to all these um, other type of gods and goddesses and everything like that but then her firstborn was greedy try to take all the gold that she's producing and then he ends up being cursed where he is eternally hungry and cannot get grain so the only way you can steal his gold coins is to distract him that way but i like the allegory here with greed especially because we have this main character who ever since they were a child decided that they wanted to find the secret treasure that was locked away in the house and they felt like it was their birthright to get to it because they're the illegitimate child of the person that was in charge we also kind of get some interesting stuff here exploring india as they gain their independence and kind of growing up that way now the creatures in this movie are creepy we have a curse that i do rather enjoy we're like at first we get to see it with the grandmother who got touched by this evil entity this god of hashtar I originally had some issues with the CGI that they did there but this time around I didn't really bother by it and it does make for some scary moments and that's the other thing I kind of want to bring up is the CGI and it wasn't nearly as bad. I also wasn't a fan though of we get these like montage sequences. Now if you've ever watched Indian cinema they will do these random musical numbers. We get a little bit of that here which it's fitting for these type of movies but it's just not really my type of thing but I ended up really digging this movie. I'm a big fan of mythology and like to learn more about other cultures. I'm also a fan of you know films using allegory or cautionary tales to convey their horror which in this one we get greed. It is fitting as an American to see this play out even though this is from a different country. This movie runs over 100 minutes and it's pace more of a slow burn. I think what they do there is still as effective. There were a few things that made me uncomfortable which works. The acting was good. The effects are hit or miss if I'm going to be honest but it's shot beautifully soundtrack isn't necessarily what i'm into but i know they use it well i will warn you though this is from india so i had to watch it with subtitles on so that's an issue i would move along here if not i feel like this is a good one and it ended up making my year-end list so i was glad to finally give this one a second watch as i still think this one is good so my rating here for tombod is going to be an 8.5 out of 10 and then up next for you i have bliss this is from 2019 this was written and directed by joe bigos This stars Dora Madison, True Collins, and Reese Wakefield. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a brilliant painter facing the worst creative block of her life, turns to anything that she can to complete her masterpiece, spiraling into a hallucinatory hellscape of drugs, sex, and murder in the sleazy underbelly of Los Angeles. So this is a film that i saw the poster at the gateway film center and heard some buzz about it now i knew this played at the nightmares film festival as well ahead of me seeing it the person who's a programming there was impressed by it so it went on a list for me to check out and i did end up seeing it the following weekend when i saw that it was showing and i am now giving it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast under the stairs so where i'm going to start is this is an interesting allegory here desi who is our main character portrayed by madison is of course a painter. This makes sense as many great people in the arts have battled addiction. She has been clean for three months and it isn't shocking that that's the same length of her not being able to paint. As she falls back into this, she gets inspiration. There is a problem that she cannot use responsibly as well. Now, that will take me to the painting aspect here. I find this interesting that when she was sober, she couldn't paint and put herself in a bad position as she was given an advance and has not been you know, doing what she's supposed to. Now, she never gave up alcohol or marijuana, but just the hard stuff. The moment that she relapses, though, she is creative again. Now, there's another addiction that she's introduced to through Courtney and Ronnie, and it's when she goes into these blackouts that she's productive. I like the idea that she's strung out, hungover, and going through withdrawals, but despite all of this, she is keeping going in her eyes. Now, as Desi is working on her masterpiece, she is hurting those around her to do so. This is another aspect of addiction, hurting those that care about you. I like that the faces in the paintings seem to look like those that she has hurt during her blackouts. I can see how drugs and her producing can affect the lives around her. She can't give this up, though, as she just needs to get it out of her, even if it kills her in the process. So in the last part of the story I want to touch on here is that there's a possible supernatural aspect to all this as well. What I really like about this is that when we first see it, she's on a bender. So we don't know if she's just hallucinating the things or if they're really happening. This is a fine line to tiptoe. Everything I've said can be taken as psychological and grounded and have like an explanation there. I do like that it shows the truth of the matter and I like what the reveal is what has happened to her. It is interesting that she doesn't have a lot of self-control so I could buy that she wouldn't be able to stop and control this new addiction. I do believe that supernatural things are happening as well. So I'm going to take this next to the pacing of the movie which I thought was good. I like that it doesn't waste any time jumping right in. It builds tension through worrying about what Desi is dealing with. We see that each time she loses control, she is struggling when she wakes up from it. What is interesting, though, is we see her panic and and consider staying sober. It doesn't take long for her to change her mind, and I do like how it ends and seeing the final product that she has been working on. The editing is also interesting here as it shows her blackouts and how weird things are. As I said earlier, that is how I remember some things during mine, as it's quite incoherent. We also get a manic pace here, which is fitting with the low runtime as well. So then I'm going to move over next to the acting as I thought Madison was great here. In the beginning, we see that she's a bit desperate. She hasn't been able to paint in months and it's wearing on her. We then see her relapse and descend into drug deuce madness. And I feel for her even though she needs help and she isn't ready for it. We do get character growth. It's just negative. She is also attractive and we get to see her nude quite a bit. So I didn't mind that at all. And then we have Collins, as I thought she was interesting, as well as Wakefield. They're bad influences and just free spirits. Their take on the creature in this is a curious one that is scary. Jeremy Gardner is Desi's boyfriend, and he's kind of a jerk here, but I like that he really does care about her. He's just not what's best for her. We also have Graham Skipper, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed, with nice cameos by George Wendt, Abraham Ben-Ruby, and Josh Ethier. And then to go over to the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack i think they were good as well i've touched a bit on the psychedelic feel while she's high since i've never taken drugs that would do that to me i would assume this is how you would experience it i feel like there's a bit of haziness when it is day which does feel like a hangover that i can confirm how as how that feels going from there the blood and gore that we get is good it was done practically which i'm a fan of i wasn't expecting that at all Now the cinematography is also well done for the reasons i've said it just looks great and fits the grimy feel that we need here soundtrack is used well and enhances some scenes so i could you know get that feeling of dread and anxiety growing it isn't necessarily music that i would revisit but it does work for what was needed so now with that said i enjoyed this film i wasn't sure what i was getting into but i saw blew me away that first time there's a cautionary tale here of drug use and losing control we see in the movie i felt that's a good representation of going too far with them from personal experience i like that we build to a supernatural aspect and it's an interesting thing there i think the acting of madison was good and brought the character of desi to life the rest of the cast did well in rounding out for what was needed it has a manic pace that works the effects were good and the soundtrack fit for what was needed with moments where it really enhances the scene i'll admit i love this film and it was a contender for my favorite of that year I'm not as high as I was after that first viewing, though, but this is still a good one. So my rating here for Bliss is an 8 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have Ma. This is from 2019. This was directed by Tate Taylor. It was written by Scotty Landis. This stars Octavia Spencer, Diana Silvers, and Juliette Lewis. This is a horror-mystery-thriller film that is a co-production between Japan and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a... 2.5 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a lonely woman befriends a group of teenagers and decides to let them party at her house. Just when the kids think their luck couldn't get any better, things start happening that make them question the intentions of their host. So this is a film that I had seen a few trailers for and was intrigued to check out. I had seen most films that come out from Blumhouse, so this was another one that I put on my list. I was even more interested when listening to a podcast the morning that I checked it out with the producer of the film saying that had some aspects that people didn't necessarily see coming. The first time I saw this was the Gateway Film Center, and then I'm doing a rewatch here for the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So kind of reiterate here i was a little bit leery about this one and wanted to make up my own mind i have to admit i was surprised i will watch most everything that blumhouse does but i do have to admit that there is a lot of films they're directing towards teens so i was glad to see this one went r-rated and ends up in places that i wasn't expecting now this film is deeper than i thought it was going to be we do get a lot of aspects of the film where ma is becoming very needy and she's portrayed by spencer it is creepy since these are all high school kids that she is drinking with there's a deeper story here that makes sense and it actually makes her a bit of a tragic character despite how psychotic she is. What makes it even interesting is that it's misguided. We are seeing the effects of bullying and what it can have on people. Ma never got over what happened to her. She is harboring hatred and she's also manifesting this onto her daughter of Jeannie portrayed by Tanya Wavers. For this film like this, I do like that they're incorporating not telling your parents things for fear of being in trouble. It makes me think back to when I was younger and the things that I would keep to myself for that reason. I do have to say, though, these teens are a bit overdone. The hard liquor they're drinking with no problem isn't believable. This is kind of a minor aspect, but it was something that I did notice. Other than that, I think that the personalities are fitting for that generation. Now, something I was impressed with was the pacing. It runs just under 100 minutes, and I never found myself bored. The other teens befriending Maggie seems a bit quick but i'm fine with not seeing her as a loner for too long i do think that tension builds at a solid clip and how things pay off is solid as well i wasn't expecting a climax to go where it did and i was down for that and then to go over to the acting i have to give it to spencer here she kills this role i know she's a really good actress but i love the range of emotions that we get from her she is tragic in dealing with the aspects of her past i felt bad for her and that she's living through these teens She's also scary when she snaps. She shifts through these in such a short time, which is impressive too. It is good to see a woman like her being the villain, but not one that we completely despise. I thought that Silvers was solid as well. I'm not the biggest fan of Lewis, but she did fine in this role. I thought Michaela Miller stole my heart in this one. She's quirky and I found her to be quite cute. She does talk too much though, so I will say that. Thought the other teens were solid. It was fun to see Luke Evans as Andy's father, as well as Missy Pyle and Allison Janney making appearances. I think the cast did well and rounded this out for what was needed. So to finish out this review, I will go to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. I didn't realize this was R-rated until I was you know actually watching it, and then we don't actually get to that point though until like the third act. I have to say the effects look good, and they would seem to be practical and the first time i watched it some of them actually had me cringing there's not a lot of them but definitely good what we got the cinematography is solid we get some good things that are edited together to raise tension which works as for the soundtrack there's a lot of older music that is playing at Moz, which i thought was a good touch it is funny because it's mostly from her era which would make sense i do think we get some good mood setting music as well which definitely helped to build tension i do think overall it is fine for what we're going for now with that said i enjoy this film What I saw from the trailers, I definitely had in mind what I thought this was going to be. I got that, but it goes deeper for the story for sure. I think that the acting helps bring this to life. Spencer was great, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. It is paced well, and the tension builds to a good climax. I wasn't expecting the effects that we got, and that helps the film as well. Soundtrack was solid, and I would definitely recommend this, as I think it's just a good film. Not great. I'll probably never go higher than what I'm giving it here. So my rating for Mott is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then for my last mini-review of this week is going to be Depraved. This is from 2019. This was written and directed by Larry Fessenden. It stars David Call, Joshua Leonard, and Alex Brill. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being a disillusioned field surgeon suffering from PTSD, makes a man out of body parts, and brings him to life in a Brooklyn loft. So this is a film that i was intrigued to check out when i saw that it was going to be a frankenstein film from pheasanton i'm a fan of his work now that i've you know dealt more into them but this was one that i caught at the gateway film center and now a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast under the stairs now i have to give credit here to pheasanton as he does a great job of adapting a good portion of frankenstein into a novel time i won't break it all down as that goes into spoilers but there are some things that i want to go over here so the first part would be with our main character of Henry portrayed by Call. It isn't a coincidence that the name is from the Universal Classic for the Doctor instead of going with the name from the novel. Even Polidori who's portrayed by Leonard makes a comment about that bringing a bit of meta into this film. I'm not sure if he's making a joke or if his real last name is Frankenstein, but I do think that is slightly heavy handed. I like the reason that Henry makes this what he does is that he was a field surgeon in the military and he lost a patient. It messed with him. His obsession was trying to save everyone and he can't. He tried to reattach limbs in the field but that's when Polidori heard about what he was doing. Now that he's back he's struggling with carrying a normal life due to the PTSD of his time serving. He isn't ready for help which creates issues with his girlfriend of Liz who is a psychiatrist or a psychologist of sorts. Now, Polidori is an interesting character here as a quasi-villain. What I like though is that Pheasanton does a great job at making the entire cast of characters complex to where you must decide morally who you back and who not to. I personally find it to be strong move as that makes me think and decide instead of being thrust into a movie where you know kind of want you to. He only wants to help people though and to make a name for himself with his company. That is Polidori here. The field of study and you know he's trying to make a lot of money. Polidori is probably the only character you don't side with after the second viewing. Much like the novel this is questioning who is more of a monster adam or polidori this is more of a rhetorical than an actual question though so now i'm gonna move over to the character of adam here who is the monster he is constructed from body parts and he's using a brain that is flashing images to him the film goes art house here as we're seeing different things happening in the brain that are superimposed over the images on the screen i do think this can be a bit cumbersome at times but i also found it interesting we are getting what he is experiencing internally It is hard to also blame Adam for anything that he has done that is bad because he doesn't understand basic humanity as it needs to be retaught. He doesn't know right from wrong which makes him a step up from an animal with great strength. Using the name of Adam is also interesting. It is a meta here that Henry is pointing out that it's a cliche being that he is the first like this. I like that there's a deeper reasoning here and it goes back to Henry and his military service though. Now something that I wanted to go to here for the last part of the story is getting a social commentary on the drug industry. Polidori is convinced that this drug he has created is making Adam function. He convinces him that no matter what, Adam needs to continue to take this medicine. He also get an interesting scene with Polidori is having dinner with his wife's parents and his father-in-law is a big wick at the company he is working for. I can see why he's trying to make a name for himself even more. Big pharmaceuticals are a problem in the United States, so I like the commentary there. Now, something I did have an issue with, though, is the pacing. This runs too long, and I think that it you know, it comes up in at like two hours. I understand that some aspects are needed here. Like, we need to see Adam learning things, but I think we get a lot of the same thing repeatedly, and I think it bogs it down. I like where it ends up, as I know the story of Frankenstein. You can pick up different points throughout. It is just needed to be tightened up, in my opinion. So this is going to move me to the acting which i thought was solid i like that the first is that call is on board with what he's doing but the more he sees adam grow the worse he feels there is a growth in humanity there that i like he does want to destroy this creation knowing that they defied the laws of nature and doing a disservice to his creation leonard is good as our villain here who is mostly money hungry i thought that bro was good look for the monster and i like how he plays the role and i feel bad for him because he's really just lonely I think Kane is solid as Liz, and I liked her performance. Same can be said for Levine, who is portraying Lucy. And I think it's also interesting that we have Owen Campbell here in his limited role as Alex. He did a solid job, too. Shout out to Addison Timlin, as she was quite attractive. And she plays someone who interacts with Adam at a bar. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed for me. And then as for the facts, I thought they were well done. They are mostly practical, which I could tell. And I expect nothing less from a low-budget filmmaker like Pheasanton. I do like the st- Scars in the look that they use on Adam to show that he's pieced together. There is a bit of CGI, but I didn't mind it. I do think they overuse the reactions and how things would look inside the brain, but it doesn't ruin the film. This is shot well, and I will give credit to the cinematography. Soundtrack was also fine without necessarily standing out. So now with that said, this is an interesting take on this classic tale. I like the updates that are made to the story. The motivations of the characters are believable, and it makes Adam a tragic character. He does run a bit long and could have been tightened up, I could see that the points from the novel that are used, which I'm a sucker for, thought the acting was good across the board, as were the effects, especially the scars on Adam. The CGI was solid, but they do overuse that quite a bit there. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but I also don't think it necessarily hurts the film and it works for what was needed. I don't think this is a great one, but I think it's a solid adaptation to the classic tale for sure, as I think this is an above-average movie for me. So my rating here for Depraved is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. And for my first feature review on this episode is going to be Delirium. This is from 1987 and went by the original title of Le Foto Di Gioa. This was directed by Lamberto Bava. And this is from the story by Luciano Martino. And the screenplay was co-written between Giofranco Clerici and Daniela Stropa. This stars Serena Grandi, Daria Nicolotti, and Vani Corbellini. This movie is also featuring David Brandon, George Eastman, Trini Mickelson, Carl Zinni, Lino Semelli, Sabrina Salerno, Capuccini, Lordana Petrecchi, Lionel di Savio, Beatrice Kruger, Gianni Franco, Marcia Sedoc, Patricia Boom, Giallo Massimini, and Massimo Manassi. And if I do pronounce any of those names, I do apologize. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with its synopsis being a former hooker runs a successful men's magazine an obsessed admirer systematically slaughters her models occasionally increasing the magazine's output and supplies the mistress with pictures of their disfigured corpses taken in front of a semi-nude poster visible in the background will she be the psycho's next victim so this movie that i'd never heard of until podcasts it popped up for me as part of my new year new movie segment here as you could tell I didn't realize until looking into it for a chance to see where I could watch this that I saw that it was directed by Bava and that it featured Daria Nicolodi and George Eastman. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some notes on our key players here. And I'll start off with our director of Bava as he has 33 credits as a director. Of them, I've seen four. All are in the horror genre with Demons, Demons 2, This, and The Ogre. His first in genre was The Venus of Illy which I had not heard of, and on my list are things like Macabre, A Blade in the Dark, and You'll Die at Midnight are some of the things that I do want to see from him. Then moving over to our writers, the first one is Martino. I've brought him up when covering Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. I'm now seeing three of his movies. The other writer is Stropa, who has 25 movies. I've seen two of them, Tenor and Horror. Her first was Convent of Sinners. Next is this movie, and then the next one as well was Killing Birds. I have seen that movie. I am curious, though, to check out The House of Clocks, Voices from Beyond, and The Crawlers. Then the last writer here is Clatterici, has 52 credits. Of them, I've seen five, 16 are in horror. The first was Shadow of Death. He did write Don't Torture a Duckling, which I do like, Jungle Holocaust, Cannibal Holocaust, The New York Ripper, and this movie here, all the ones that I have seen. I do want to see House at the End of the Park and House of Clocks. Then moving over to our cast, I'll start with Grandi. She has 44 credits. This is the only one that I've seen. Now she has two in horror with this one here and Anthropophagus. The next will be Nickelodeon. She has 37 credits, and I've seen 10. She was in 13 horror movies, and her first was Deep Red, of course, followed by Suspiria, as she was a longtime Dario Argento collaborator. I've also seen Inferno, Tenebrae, Phenomena, This, Opera, The Sect, and Mother of Tears. Now, I do want to see Shock and Paganini Horror as she was in both of those as well. Then finally, I'll look at Corbellini. He has 12 films. I've only ever seen this one, and this is the only horror film that he was in. So, we start this movie by a swimming pool. We have Kim, who is portrayed by Trini Mickelson, is modeling with two others. The photographer is Roberto, who is portrayed by Brandon, and his assistant is Tony, portrayed by Corbellini. Tony is the younger brother of Gloria, who is portrayed by Grande, she is in charge here and works with evelyn who is portrayed by Nickelodeon. this shoe is recreating one of her most famous ones and they're using this to reinvent their magazine gloria inherited this magazine when her husband passed away in a car accident also we get to meet mark who is portrayed by Zenny, who's a wheelchair bound man and he's in love with gloria and he makes obscene phone calls to her as things wind down that night kim is attacked trying to leave the person sees her with having a large eyeball for a face now she is killed with a pitchfork mark sees what happened and calls Gloria to tell her she thinks that he is messing with her though she soon realizes that's not the case when she receives a picture of the murdered model like the synopsis stated now gloria must figure out who is behind it before it's too late there are quite a few suspects like flora who's portrayed by cappuccini who wants to buy the magazine there's an old flame that gloria rekindles with of alex portrayed by eastman it could also be that gloria works with or even mark as we learn about his history and the cause of his physical ailment so that's where i'm gonna leave my recap for this movie though now i pointed out that this is a giallo or i should point that out at least so we're getting a murder mystery i like that this movie doesn't take too long to get into this one either we establish a good portion of our cast and then we get that first murder. What I like from here is that we learn characters' backstories, which contributes to making us wonder who is involved with the murders and who is a red herring. I thought this worked well, especially because it had me guessing until the end. I did guess who the killer was early on, but it had me second guessing it. I thought that was the wrong decision for a decent stretch, actually. So where I'm going to take this over to next is looking a bit more into the premise. Jiali tend to use sexual perversion in their movies, and that is something we get here. We are dealing with the world of modeling, which can be cutthroat. The title of this movie also plays into the premise. Our killer sees Kim as having an eyeball head. Another one is a head of an insect before she is killed. I didn't fully understand this until I looked up the name of the title. Illusions and hallucinating are some things that come with delirium. What I do have an issue with here, though, is that they abandon this idea. It also doesn't go anywhere aside from showing that our killer is crazy. So the last thing for the story I want to delve into with some of the characters is that I don't think we need it to be here. Some are legitimately just introduced to be red herrings. This is something that I'm not going to delve into too much because I could give away spoilers for who the killer is. What I will say though is that Roberto is the photographer has a motive since the deaths pile up. Gloria considers, you know, selling the magazine. Evelyn keeps getting the pictures of the stage deaths mark's past is more intertwined with gloria than he knows there's also flora who wants gloria to sell the magazine and gloria has a past where there's quite a few people that could be the killer and have a reason so moving from that i'll take this over to the acting Grandi is good as our lead here i like that she does some logical things as death happen, she wants to sell the magazine and hopes that they'll stop i didn't realize until reading in the back of the blu-ray that she was considered the dolly Parton of italy she is quite attractive and we see her nude as well I was happy to see Nicoloti here, even though she doesn't have a very big part. Corbellini, Brandon, and Zenny are all good. I think the victims were as well. I like to see Eastman in this role. Something I brought up in Gialli as well is bumbling cops. Like I haven't said it here, but I've talked about this in the past. We get Inspector Corsi, who's portrayed by Samelli, but he is doing good police work here. The problem is that he just doesn't have a lot to go on, and I thought his performance was solid as well. So this will take me to the cinematography effects and the soundtrack. I'll go first to the effects. I think they look good here. The blood we get was solid. There's some interesting deaths that we get early on. I am bummed that they went away for what this movie is, you know, building upon in the beginning. But it's not necessarily a problem. How this was shot was good. I think we get some solid cinematography there. There's a bit of lighting here that, you know, you come to expect from the subgenre. We get a couple times that a red light is used that I enjoyed seeing. The soundtrack would be the last bit here, and I thought that worked for what the movie needed. It feels very 80s, and I can definitely appreciate that. So now before I end out this review here, I do have a little bit of trivia from the IMDb page. Argento was at one point attached but pulled out due to script changes. Shooting began on September 15th of 1986. And of course, Video Nasty star Eastman stars in this movie as well. And there was this little quote here about Lamberto Bava and talking about this movie in regards to Grandi. Didn't really know where they were going with that, so I'm not going to read that one because it is quite long. So what I will say then is that in conclusion, we have a solid late giallo here from Bava. Taking place in the world of modeling is fitting. The mystery worked, keeping me guessing to the end. I do think there are some characters that could be cut as they don't really add a whole lot aside from being red herrings. The acting was good. The effects were as well. There's some solid cinematography and the soundtrack fit the movie for what was needed. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie and one that I'm excited to revisit now that I have watched it. So my rating here for Delirium is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not gonna do a spoiler section, because I don't really think there's anything else I need to kind of delve deeper into. So what I'll go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. <laughs> Nearly grab it, grab it, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, Race. Alright, I'll beat you. Ah. <laughs> oh. Tell me another story. As legend has it. There exists a beast more evil than any other that roams the world and preys on the people who are the most vulnerable. It stands tall, with a face framed by hollow cheekbones, and no eyes. Fill the sockets on his face. But that doesn't matter, as it stares right through you. As the more you fear the beast, the more it sucks you in. Those are just stories. The beast doesn't exist. You may not be able to see it. The beast is there. It's coming. Who is it? I don't know. No respite. Otherwise it will kill us. Run fast, Diego! Mama! As soon as the beast is seen. All of your life that remains is hopeless. And for my second featured review on this episode is going to be The Wasteland. This goes by the original title of El Paramo. This is directed by David Munt, who also helped co-write this with Marti Lucas and Fran McCon This stars Inma Kiesta, Roberto Alamo, and Azir Flores, while also featuring Alejandra Howard and Victor Benjamín. This is is a drama horror mystery film that is from spain it is currently sitting on a 4.6 on imdb and a 2.5 on letterboxd with the synopsis being the tranquil lives of a family isolated from the rest of society are disturbed by a terrifying creature testing the ties that bind them together so this is a movie that i sought out when i was looking for 2022 released movies it appeared on a list of movies that my buddy tim has watched and he seemed to have liked it and i do respect his opinion spanish horror tends to be good or i at least enjoy them it paired up well having now seen this with the older movie that i you know i just reviewed here of delirium so you know i watch he's actually in the same exact night so before i get into the movie itself let me do some notes on the key players here and it's actually gonna be quite short compared to the last one And I'll start off with the director of Casa de Munt, as this is his feature film debut for a director as well as a writer. Now, one of his co-writers of Ortiz has three credits. This is their only work in genre. Now, Lucas has two, and this is the only one that I've seen and in horror as well for all three of them. Then moving to the actors, we have Chiesta, who has 21 credits. This is the only one that I've seen and the only one that falls into the genre on top of that. Flores is our child actor who has two credits, much of the same though. This is the only thing in horror and that I've seen. And then just to change this up slightly, we have Alamo. He has 31 credits as an actor. I've seen two. Both of them are in genre and the only two that he has of The Skin I Live In and now this movie here. So for this movie, we learn that we're in 19th century Spain. There have been multiple wars that have ravaged the land. Some people have isolated themselves to avoid it. We are following one of these families. Introduce us to Diego, who is portrayed by Flores, who is the son of Lucia, who is Chiesta, and Salvador, portrayed by Alamo. There are these wooden figures that are carved that sit across from Diego, and he can see them from his bed. He gets spooked and ends up breaking his bedpan in the process. He needs to go to the bathroom, so he goes to his parents' room salvador is awoken to take him to the outhouse the reason is that outside is dangerous for the time that they are living in and how far in the middle of nowhere they live and it actually should be pointed out here that there are these markers that the father created they're almost like scarecrows and this marks how far where their land kind of ends and diego is not supposed to go farther than that so from this point on we see budding heads of the parents here of lucia and salvador he wants diego to grow up as life is hard we see through needing to kill one of the rabbits for food lucia though wants to protect him and help keep his innocence all this changes when they find a man drifting in a boat by a nearby river salvador sends diego home the man is bleeding and looks like he's been through a lot he is portrayed by benjumia now we get to see even more of that as they go back to the cabin this family lives in to complicate things further salvador tells his family the story of a beast that roams this area He thinks that's what killed his sister of Juana, portrayed by Howard. After hearing the story, this haunts nightmares of Diago. Now Salvador decides to take this man back to his family, leaving his wife and child alone. From here we see isolation causing them to sink into madness of sorts. The question becomes though, are they crazy or is there actually a beast that roams this land? So that's why I'm going to leave my recap as there isn't a lot to this story. It is more getting to know these characters before we see them descend into madness. Where I want to start would be the time that it's set, as this is a period piece. We are seeing that the people of Spain had to deal with war and were sick of it. The family wants to just live off their land and be left alone. Isolating yourself is fine, as I won't tell people how to live their lives. The problem becomes, though, that madness can set in without interaction with other people. It becomes a catch-22. This family must decide to isolate and avoid the world, or deal with it and face the consequences there. So from that idea, I want to go next to this beast that we are getting in the movie. At first, Salvador is the only one who can see it. Lucia wants him to stop talking about it, fearing that it will give Diego nightmares. Once Salvador leaves, we see that Lucia descends into depression. She believes she will never see her husband again. She then starts to see the beast herself. It isn't until much later in the movie that Diego also starts to see it. The question, though, is, is the monster there or is this madness setting in? I think we have an interesting commentary here that comes with this, though. Salvador tells a story of his sister, of Juana, who saw the beast as well. It appears that Diego's grandparents were harsh with her and physically beat his sister. She saw the monster and her brother thought it came to get her. Lucia gives a different explanation of what happens. I'm taking it as this beast is a manifestation of the horrors of the outside world and things being too much to go on. To see it, you need to have the loss of innocence. Having a boy who is one of our leads helps to present this. What I did like here though is that we also get to see it as having a monster and it is like a physical manifestation of it, there isn't necessarily a definite answer. I think how things end makes a lot of sense though, so I do like that we're actually getting to see this thing play out so you can kind of make your own determinations here. Now I do have some negatives to go into as well. This movie I don't think is great in conveying everything that I've described. For one thing, it runs too long. I feel bad saying that as it runs just over an hour and a half. I think that 10 minutes could have been cut from it and there are things that can be removed. It does well in setting up this family. It doesn't take long to get our characters being depressed. From there, we harp too much on it without really necessarily escalating things. I think removing some of that could help and getting the Beast to appear more would have helped this. Thankfully, this movie isn't longer than it is or it would have hurt it for sure. Now, going from this, though, we shift to a positive here with the acting. I like to see Kiesta shown as the nice parent. She wants Diego to stay a boy. That isn't until life gets hard without her husband there to help her. On the other side of this, we have Alamo. He recognizes that life isn't hard and he's been broken by it in the past. He wants Diego to realize it. I think that parents play well off each other. They both love him and each other, but things aren't easy. Flores I thought was good as our boy here. I like seeing him not being ready for difficult things that adults must do. It felt real and it works for what they're pushing. Howard was also solid along with Benjumia. Now this will end up taking me to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former I think that the effects we get are fine. There's a gnarly one with Benjamia's character that I liked. We get to see a bit of blood there and that looked real. There's also this beast that we see stalking them. I like what they did there. I'm assuming some of this was done with CGI but I didn't have a problem with that. The cinematography was also well done. It helps to build this bleak atmosphere that this movie needed. Going along with this is the soundtrack. I thought the musical selections were fine. We get use of sounds off screen that is effective. This includes from characters as well as this creature. I'm also a big fan of the use of thunder in this movie. It rains and storms a fair amount which builds tension with a potential beast that I did end up liking. So before I end this review I am going to do just a bit of trivia from the IMDB page. Which according to producers Joaquin Prado, Mar Targanoa, and Marina Prado. The Netflix film was shot on a moor in the province of Turel, which is a location is a vital ingredient to delve into history. The music recording sessions took place at the Polish S3 TVP studios in Krakow, where the Beethoven Academy Orchestra conducted by Diego Navarro gave life for the first time to the soundtrack of the film. In recording, predominantly the string section with the participation of piano, celesta, harp, and flutes, This is the writer and director's debut. Now at the 29 minute mark, Lucia and Diego are counting the seconds after a clap of thunder is heard in order to estimate how far the sermon is moving away. This is similar to Poltergeist, which I was actually thinking, in which the father does the same thing with his son to help put his fears to bed as well. So then in conclusion here, this movie had potential. I like the ideas that we're exploring here with life being hard and the loss of innocence. I even like the idea of a beast complicating things or just being a metaphor for what the movie is giving us. The acting was good. The effects were solid along with the cinematography and soundtrack. This movie runs too long though. I don't think they do great with exploring things due to me losing interest unfortunately. I would have to say this is just over average. There are just too many issues for me to go higher but this is a well made movie so I will give credit for that. So, my rating here for The Wasteland is going to be a 6 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section since this movie is so new and everything like that. So, I would say if you want to go see this, check it out on Netflix. So, what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode 117. If you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback or anything to have read right on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnote.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, it's David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews for anything that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's davidosu87, and then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is with a Cinephile, all one word, and then just to make it easier for you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes, and then the next thing I'd ask you to do, and probably the last thing would be that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can get out to more listeners out there, all of that good stuff there. So then for the next episode for you is going to be moving into February where I'm going to be doing half the month is going to be woman appreciation where I'm going to try to find women directed horror movies as well as, you know, movies that feature women in, you know, prominent roles as well as I'm also going to be moving into my black exploitation slash, you know, same type of thing, black directors or like, you know, mostly predominantly black casts. So the first episode for this month is going to be my women one where I'm going to have... I found a... I think it's an Indian movie from Netflix that is called Ghost Stories. That's going to be the... You know older type movie that i'm looking at and then the other one i'm going to be pairing it up with from this year is going to be the last thing that mary saw i think it's the title for it i know i've heard some buzz some people seen it at film festivals and everything i believe duncan's already watched it as well so i you know made sure that was you know top of my list i think that is now on shutter and then i'm also going to be watching the ghost of frankenstein to keep up with my trek through the twos i believe that one came out in 1942 Don't really know if there's anything else i need to get you up to speed with here you know i'll continue to watch as many horror movies as i can as well during the week so then what i will say then in closing is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing that this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending